Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, welcome back, and uh, those of you who are listening or watching online, we, we just um, feel a sisterhood with you and look forward to the day when we can all be normal again, but um, whatever that means. Yeah. Are you normal? I'm not normal, but anyway, we're working on it, aren't we? So anyway, last week, um, those of you who were here or online, I told a story about how God is not our blessing dispenser. Do you remember that story? And we talked about how Roby, my son, would um, pack away his quarters. And when we'd go to the grocery store and we'd see that, um, that um, machine, I don't know where they are today, I haven't seen one forever. Pardon? Gumball machine, yes, kind of thing. But this one happened to have not gumballs, but football helmets. And um, so he would get, get, remember I told the story about how he'd put his quarter in and he'd, you know, just wait for the dolphin helmet to come through and all that kind of thing. And um, just loved doing that and saved all his quarters from his allowance and so forth. And so I was telling him this week, I said, oh, Roby, you won't believe this, but you were the source of one of my illustrations. And he, he laughed and he goes, okay, yeah, I love the little boy illustrations a lot, Mom. But anyway, um, so um, I was telling him about it, and he said, well, you remember the end of the story? And I said, no, I really don't think I do. And he said, well, the end of the story was that one year in late fall, Dad got a ton of hoarders, went to Winn-Dixie, stood by the machine, and kept inserting, 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 inserting quarters until he was able to get all the helmets that he knew Roby didn't have yet. And then what is, I know, is that sweet or what? And um, he said, and, and then he wrapped him up and gave it to him for a Christmas present. So Roby had every NFL football helmet that was known to mankind in his room. It was such an example of what? A father's love. A father's love. And I cannot believe I didn't remember that story, but hmm, okay. And he said, ask Tori, she'll remember. And um, so anyway, I just thought, you know, what an illustration. The end of the story is such an illustration of what we're talking about. We have a heavenly father's love. And we're going to see the heavenly Father's love exhibited over and over and over again in this uh, chapter of Ruth and Naomi's life in the book of Ruth. And so as I say that, would you turn with me to chapter 2, and we're going to begin at the beginning, the first verse. And um, we, last week we ended with Naomi arriving home, remember, with Ruth and Toll after an extremely long journey. Uh, scholars believe it was anywhere from 50 to 70 miles um, in rough terrain, two women. Oh my goodness, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, won't it be interesting to see the whole story or hear the whole story? I'm going to just sit down with Ruth and say, hey, tell me everything that happened and, you know, all that kind of thing. How God guarded you? Did you find a caravan that was headed to Bethlehem or whatever? And to hear the whole story would be amazing. But anyway, two women across the wilderness. 50 to 70 miles, wow, in that day and age, incredible. They get to Bethlehem, and we see the townspeople surprised, and Naomi revealing her heart regarding her, her plight. And here is where we begin to see God's plan unfold, where we see a heavenly father's love. Heavenly father's love. And here also, for the first time, we meet Boaz the hero. We've already met the heroines, but now we get to meet, for the first time, Boaz, the hero. And we learn a lot about him in our first encounter with him. So A on your outline, who is this Boaz? Who is Boaz? Look at verse 1 with me, and we are introduced to him. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. First thing we learn 
is that number one, he was from the clan of Elimelech. Notice that he is not Naomi's clansman, he is Elimelech's, and that's very important to the story that he's uh, Elimelech's relative. Because of the connection, he is able to be Ruth's Goel, or kinsman redeemer, which we'll study about later on as we get into the book of Ruth. But the, the family or kinsmen of Elimelech denotes a much larger group than we think of as extended family. Oh, you know, cousins and, and brothers and so forth. This was more the, the feeling of the, a Scottish clansman. He was a part of the clan of Elimelech is kind of the idea here. Number two, he was a man of worth. Notice it says in the, in, in the verse, a worthy man, a man of worth. Other places it's translated man, a mighty man of valor, similar to the concept of a knight, a knight in shining armor, you know, a knight from medieval ages who was sort of the wow person in, in the community. Uh, he was mighty, a man distinguished, apparently, from the wording, for military prowess. So perhaps he could have actually literally been a warrior because we know from this particular time of history, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, that it was a time of, uh, of unrest, difficulty, and so he could literally have been a warrior at that time, a, a soldier. Number three, he was a man of wealth of wealth. Other translations, like the New King James Version, translates worth as wealth, which we know could very possibly, not possibly, was accurate because we see him, and we're going to see him in the next verses, as the boss of a very large farm, a very large farm, or multiple farms. He was, he was uh, the boss of, uh, of a farm. Four, he was a pillar in the community. A man of worth represents a picture of someone of influence and here it is, integrity in the community. And boy, we're going to see that pouring out in the next chapters. Uh, he was a solid citizen, somebody that, they, that could, they could count on. Well, you know, Boaz, he's a, a wonderful man. He's a man of worth. He's a man of integrity. I, you know, we can count on Boaz was the feeling. We also learned very interestingly in 1 Kings 7.21, that one of the pillars in the front of Solomon's temple, one of the, the wonders of the world, Solomon's temple, years later on, one of those pillars is named, are you ready? Boaz. Boaz. Was it named for him? I'm thinking, most likely. We don't have you know, proof or anything, but that certainly would fit, wouldn't it? And the, that just reveals, again, his heart and how he was indeed a man of integrity. Number five, his name Boaz literally means in him is strength. In him is strength. Interesting that his very name means might. Uh, it, in him is strength. And biblical names are so significant, aren't they? Uh, it's just so interesting as you walk through the Bible how so many of the names are, just have such tremendous meaning. And remember that Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, after the bitter circumstances hit her. Now, was she bitter? Was she a bitter, angry woman? I don't think so personally. I, you know, we don't, I don't have any proof of that, but in my opinion, I don't think so, just from verses. In fact, we're going to look at one today. But she was saying, hey, bitter circumstances have hit me. And so don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And so we see the significance of the titles of our name. And so for, for Boaz to be called in him as strength is very interesting. So be on your outline. Ruth and Naomi face their problem. They've arrived in, arrived in Bethlehem. Everybody's like talking about it and what's going on and what happened. You know, wait a minute. They left with a husband and sons and what happened? And they're all buzzing. And so now they're here and now they've got to figure out how to do life. How to do life without any men in that time of, of history. So, so look at verse 2 with me. And Ruth, the, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she, talking about Naomi, 
said to her, go, my daughter. Now, number one, what was their situation? We've already talked about this a couple of times, but their situation is that they were basically beggars. There was nothing that they could do. Their only survival was to be able to, um, to beg and, and have people uh, speak into their lives and help them out. Without men in their lives at that time of history, they would have to rely on the charity of others. Notice also that the writer does not want us to miss that Ruth is a foreigner in Naomi's uh, homeland. Most of the times that she's mentioned by name, when they say Ruth, most of the times in this passage, check it out, let's count it and see, not right now, but later on, but anyway, uh, she's called Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. We the, the author of Ruth, the book of Ruth does not want us to miss the fact that she was not a part of the community, that she was a foreigner. And it, so it's repeated over and over and over again through the book. Notice that Ruth is in this verse takes the initiative to help in their situation by suggesting the humbling and backbreaking job of gleaning. Now, what in the world is gleaning? Something that you and I, thank you, Jesus, have never had to do. Because if we did, we'd probably come in on an angle. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, it was backbreaking. What was it? Number two, what is gleaning? It was a law that at harvest time, a man must not reap his land to the border. Now, I know nothing about farmland and grain and growing wheat and barley and all those kinds of things. I don't know if any of you do, and if so, come on up and tell us about it. But um, I, I've, you've seen, if you've been in a kind of a rural area, perhaps in a harvest time, you've seen um, tractors and so forth, and they go, kind of go up, and then they come down, and up and down, and they fill the back with you know, stuff that they're, whatever they're doing, reaping. And um, you see them going up very carefully and ba back down the other way and so forth, from one end of the property to the other end of the property. Well, that's the picture, except that they were required by law to leave a border around their property. They were to leave a border so that the poor could come and glean or pick up what they left along the edges of their property. This was a provision made for the poor in Leviticus 19, 23, and Deuteronomy 24. The poor then could come through and pick up or glean what was left on the side of the field. That, that way, food was available. Now, somebody mentioned last night, um, can you imagine, okay, so they gleaned, they got all this, these plants and uh, uh, branches of the, whatever they're called, branches of the plant, whatever. But uh, anyway, but that wasn't the end of it. Then they had to separate the grain from the branches, and then they had to grind it, and then they had to put it into a bread form, and then they didn't pop it into the oven. They had to, on a fire baking situation, <laughs> they had to then cook it. So you, can, you just can imagine how, wow, this was. But it, again, it was a provision by God to take care of the poor in the, the community, to get free grain. God's hand was even in the timing of the arrival of Ruth and Naomi, wasn't he? Because when did they arrive? At harvest time. They came at a time when God, through his word, had made available grain through the gleaning process, through the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So for God to say, okay, this is the time when you're to go across, across the wilderness and go to Bethlehem because, oh, this is harvest time when you can glean. So we see God's heavenly loving hand even in the timing of when they arrived back at Bethlehem. You know, we, it's such a beautiful truth that even today, let's not forget that. Let's not forget that, that when we're in our bitter circumstances, God is always there in the midst of them. Let me say that again. Even in our bitter circumstances, God is there 
in the midst of them. Let's not forget that. Let's cling to that. Let's, let's, let's embrace that. Let's remind each other. Let's look heavenward and say, Lord, what are you doing here in this situation? I know you're in it. I know you're in it because it's all the way through the Bible and you don't have any favorites. I'm his favorite. No, Chisato's his favorite. No, Karen's his favorite. We're all his favorite, for goodness sake. And so if, if he would do that for his favorite Ruth, then he's going to do that for uh, his favorite me and his favorite you. And uh, so it's such a beautiful picture, and we want to embrace the truth of the things that we see about God way back in the Old Testament. This year, as we were coming up to the end of the, uh, the year here at Sheridan House, um, we were kind of, as staff, kind of, you know, going, okay, this is COVID year, and, you know, this is a time when a lot of people like to, you know, provide at the end of the year and so forth, but everybody is so struggling, and, you know, all the things that are going on, many people have, you know, not, not able to work right now and so forth, and we were kind of, you know, saying, hmm, and can I tell you, God knows, and in bitter circumstances, is always there in the midst of it. It's like he reminded people, don't forget your beloved charities. Don't forget my work. Don't forget your church. And we were the recipients of perhaps one of the greatest, and I think Bob talked about that last week, didn't he? One of the greatest end of the year provisions that we have ever experienced. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah is right. God is in the midst of our circumstances. He does not forget us. He does not forget us. C, what character traits do we see uh, in Ruth? Number one, we see resourcefulness. Apparently, she found out about this custom. There is no indication that gleaning was done in Moab because it was really a uh, Jewish custom. Notice that she's the one that suggests it to Naomi. Naomi didn't say, hey, girl, you get out there in that field and you start gleaning. It's something that she suggested. She was resourceful. It was her idea to provide for the two of them, she, to subject herself to the back-breaking job, which uh, reveals her next quality. But I want you to take a look at that picture up there. Is that incredible? I mean, does that look like fun to you? I mean, they're bent over and they're picking up grain and... Um, probably putting it in a basket, and somebody said last night, well, I wonder how they got, a, got it home, and I don't know. Do they have big baskets? I know they carried water jugs on their heads. Maybe they carried them on their heads. Maybe they had backpacky type things, but wow, that was back-breaking work, and what about if it poured rain? Or what if it was, yes, harvest time, but what if it was a very, very, very hot day? See, unseasonable. It was backbreaking, and Ruth says, you know what, Naomi, this is a tradition here in Israel. Let me do this to feed us. Amazing resourcefulness that she figures that out. We also see, number two, her next quality, humility. Humility. Uh, basically, this was begging. This was begging. She, they were going around the edges of the field, as we talked about a minute ago. And um, so amazing that she wasn't too proud to roll up her sleeves and to do anything to help in the situation. You know, that's one of the things that has astonished me over the years about some of our events here at Sheridan House. We've had women that come in for the, the, the um, single mom Thanksgiving event, for the toy drive, and they're and, and as you, we, we just all are working together and so forth, and it's just incredible to see women rolling up their sleeves and to find out we have teachers, we have nurses, we have business owners, we have just, you name it, people, and nobody has a sign saying, hey, I'm pretty important and look what I'm doing for, for this ministry. No, they roll up their sleeves and they get in there in humility. One time, I'll never forget, there was this woman that was years ago who was taking, hauling things off of trucks and, and putting them into the single mom cars and you know just working her, just sweating and just working her brains out. And I said, who is that? And they said, well, that's so-and-so. She's a circuit court judge in Fort Lauderdale. Humility, humility. That's what we see in her. Number three, she deals with the crisis with integrity. We all 
face difficult circumstances. Wait a minute, let me say that again. We all face difficult circumstances. How we respond to them is our choice. We all have difficulties. How we respond to them is our choice. Some allow themselves to be victims. Others move on and learn. Some of you, I got her permission to tell you this, uh, this story, but uh, many of you, I hope all of you, are getting uh, our newsletter. And the writer of the newsletter's name is Monica. She's a mother of two twins, little, little children. And um, she has, for several years now, been dealing with cancer in different parts of her body. And, you know, she'll just get, take care of one type of cancer and it'll pop up in another. And they take care of that and then she's, it pops up in another. And the thing that has astonished me about this young mommy, brilliant young mommy, is her attitude. She's not defeated. And every, I'm sure she has her moments when she's discouraged and, and fearful, but what she says and voices and what her general attitude at all times is, God has got this. He will take care of me. He will take care of me. And I love that attitude that she has. I've been so, um, what's the word I want? Impressed, inspired, thank you, thank you, thank you. Good words, inspired by, by her attitude and choosing in a fearful, desperate situation that she's chosen to say, God's in this, God's in this. He knows, he knows, he knows. He's got this in his control. We choose that, don't we? We can either be defeated or we can choose to say, God is in control of every inch of my life, every inch of my life. Someone said, life is like a grindstone. Stone. Either it grinds you down or polishes you up, depending on what we're made of. Don't you love that? Either it can grind us down or it can polish us up. Wow. And we see the polishing process in Ruth and Naomi's life in this passage. Ruth was in a desperate situation and we can draw three principles from her example of how she deals with crisis. First, A, evaluate. Evaluate, assess where you are. Get a closer picture of what you have and what you don't have. What's going on in my life? Okay, Lord, I've got this circumstance and, and I want to evaluate this. I wanna see what I can do to uh, be the best I can be in this circumstance and to help the best I can. And that's what we see Ruth doing. She's not moping around, feeling sorry for herself, waiting for Naomi. Okay, Naomi, I mean, really, this is your town. These are your friends, your relatives. Come on, what are you going to do about taking care of us? Are, is somebody going to bring us dinner? I mean, come on, Naomi. There's none of that in, in, in Ruth. She's on it. She's evaluating. She's, she's uh, looking at the situation, and she refuses to back, back down from her difficult circumstance. She assessed what, uh, what was working in her behalf, like their timing was working on their behalf. It was harvest time, and also about the law of gleaning. She had heard about that and thought, hmm, I could do that. And so she's assessing the situation and what's available to them and how she can step up and be a part of it uh, by evaluating. She, you know, she looks and she says, okay, I'm an able-bodied worker. Wow, I mean, that's pretty able-bodied, leaning over like that in the fields all day. Wow. She, and so she wisely takes advantage of all that, assessing. Second lesson we learn from Ruth is B, exert yourself exert yourself. She assesses her situation and rolls up her sleeves. She didn't say, oh, this back-breaking, uh, awful situation is really beneath me. Uh, I, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to just sit here and, and wait on God to do something. She says, you know what, while we're waiting on God to do something, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do what I can do. I'm going to assess and do. Um, I'll, I'll never forget when I was in college, Bob uh, came from a a, a businessman's home, and his dad was very good about saying, okay, you're in charge of paying for your college fees. Could have very easily written the check for the full, whole four years and be done with it. But he said, you know what? I want you to learn to work, Bob, Bobby. 
And so I, I remember being, one of the things that impressed me about him as I first got to know him was how no job was too menial. Thank you. And he did everything from pumping gas to cleaning out septic tanks. And I remember being so impressed with that. And you know what? My opinion, but I think that God was preparing him for the early days of Sheridan House when he had to take garbage to the dump every day and had to haul groceries in from Publix and other places that uh, donated, thank you, Jesus, uh, groceries to us. And I, I saw God's hand in that willingness to exert himself no matter how menial, thank you for the word, the task was in his life. I love that. That's what we see in uh, Ruth's life. Gleaning was hard work, and she was not afraid of it. Ruth was not afraid of it. Look at verse 7. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she had continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Isn't that a principle? Often when we're hurting, doing something helps. Have you ever noticed that? Getting busy helps. And here's the thing. Getting busy helping somebody else is even the best medicine as we're going through something in our life. Don't you think? That, I think God uses that attitude of, okay, I'm really hurting about here, but I'm, there's, I have a friend who's also hurting. Let me pour into her life. Let me um, share with her. Let me pray with her. Let me help in whatever way I can. And when we pour ourselves into somebody else's life and get busy, um, it helps us to get past some of those times when we just feel like, oh, I just, I don't know if I can go on. I'm just so tired. I'm so spent. I'm so weary. I'm so sad and so forth. Third lesson in dealing with crisis, we see her see following God's leading. Ruth had a plan, but she also had flexibility. Look at the second half of verse 2 again. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. Now, what she's saying there, in other words, wherever I'm allowed, wherever I, when I get into a field, I'm going to check and see if I'm allowed here. And in, in, I, will, I will glean in the area who's, after him in whose sight... I find favor. So she's saying, if I get permission, that will be the field that I go into. Are we flexible or sometimes immovable? Are we flexible or sometimes immovable? I'll never forget one time um, I was doing devotions and I was having a wonderful time with the Lord, sitting in my corner and reading and praying and all that. And, and you know, this is a day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, whatever you have for me today, I'm yours. I'm, I'm, I want to I be flexible. I want to follow your leading. And um, the phone will ring. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm going to be on for an hour and a half. And just like, oh. Have you ever been there? Please say yes. Make me feel better. But anyway, um, I'm ready to do whatever you want. And so he has a... a family member or whatever, call and say, I, can you talk? And you're like, got to get the laundry in, get dishes done, all that kind of thing. Wow. We need to follow Ruth's example and allow God to lead us, to allow God to open our do the doors in our situations. Look at the door he opened for Ruth. Had she been self-centered, had she been waiting for Naomi to do something, would that door have opened? that we're about to see happen. And we know most of us at the end of the story, it's pretty amazing. And had she been lazy and waiting other people, um, the door would not have been open. Amazing. He opened the door for her. In our hero's field. Wow. D, we observe God's providence. In all of this, we observe God's providence. Once again, we see God's hand all over Ruth's life. And the author does not want us to miss it. Miss it. Look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, do you love that word? Happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, which is the clan of Elimelech. She happened. I love that. Very, very significant. This was divine providence. God made it happen. Heavenly Father's 
love. That the field where she ended up was in Boaz's field. How many she happened do you think you and I have had in our lives? I think our lives are full, overflowing <laughs> with she happened and God's providential hand placing you, placing me, placing Ruth in a particular situation at a particular time. We have all had them in our lives. They're all over our lives. But what we have to do is open our eyes to see them. We need to be watchful for the she happened in our lives, especially in times like this when we're in this um, COVID crisis and we're wondering what's going to happen and will we ever be the same again? Will we ever be able to take the masks off for goodness sake and go to a restaurant, sit down, crowded? Um, you know, what's going to happen? In these times when things are so uncertain, to be watchful, looking for, she happened. She happened. Wow. Someone said, there are no coincidences, only God incidents. Divine coincidences. Bob's brother is a seeker. And um, for years, you know, we have used this whole concept of there are no, no such thing as coincidences. Everything that happens to us is God. And we've shared personal stories with him, and we've shared Sheridan House stories with him. And he's gotten to the point where before we have a chance to say anything, he'll say, that's a God incidence, isn't it? And we say, yes, take that to heart. Listen to that. And I honestly think that that concept is going to be ultimately what leads him to the Lord personally. Wow, I love it. I love it. Divine instances. We need to be on a continual God hunt, watching for God's hand, watching for she happened in our lives. We need to be, um, it needs to become a spiritual discipline to watch for God. Unusual circumstances or timing of circumstances. This past summer, we were driving back from the mountains, and um, we got just had just gotten on the on the highway, and we were probably, you know, in northern uh, South Carolina or something. And Bob said, "You know, this the the steering wheel just seems a little weird." And um, so we said, "Ah, well, maybe it's you know how sometimes the highways are, you know, the one part of it's been worked on or something is a little bit higher and it kind of bounces you a little bit." And I said, "I wonder, you know, maybe it's that." And so we said, oh, "Okay." And so we're like, "We need to get home," and uh, you know, all that kind of thing. So we kept on, kept on, and he's saying, "You know, oh, I'm, I just don't feel good about this." And so we're saying, "Should we pull in, have a chat?" Well, let's just keep trying, see what happens. And finally, ten and a half, eleven hours later. We pulled off of uh, 595 and um, onto 75 and onto Sheridan Street, and we got to the light at Flamingo and Sheridan Street, which is a block away from where we live in Rock Creek, and all of a sudden, the entire car began to shake. And he, Bob is trying to steer the car down around this way and then to the left down to our house. And we're steering, steering, steering. And we pulled into the driveway and <laughs> done. It would not even move. It was so dead that the next day when the uh, dealership uh, came, had, said, had to send, uh, send a tow truck and they had to haul it away. It was that dead and there's something very wrong. I've never heard of such a thing happening to a car or um, anyway, but it, it was something to do with the axle. And I, I, we were like, Lord, your timing. <laughs> it could have happened in South Carolina and we don't have a dealership that we have used up there or anything. And so, you know, we might have been stuck there for days, for goodness sakes. And I have a cat in the back of my car <laughs> back to get home. Anyway, and, um, but God's timing that it happened, the car crashed in our driveway. Wow. Was that a God incident? I think so. Was that a coincidence? No. God ordered and orchestrated. He does that all the time. We just need to be on the look for that in our lives. Next on your outline, God's divine design begins to unfold. Look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. 
And so here at this point, enter Boaz, our hero. We begin to see the unfolding of God's divine design to bring them together. What a great story. Have ever, anybody ever made a movie out of Ruth and Boaz? Hallmark, come on, what, what are you thinking? Great movie. We don't need that, we can just read it. But uh, anyway, such a great, great story. Notice the way verse 4 begins, and it says, Behold, it's an intention getter. I don't know what you have in your version, but in Hebrew it looks, it says, Then look. Like, wow, something amazing is about to happen. Then look. Be aware. Watch what's going to happen. Watch God's incident begin to unfold here. Not in their timing, but in his. Then look. Boaz comes in from Bethlehem, um, and we almost see him galloping in on a white steed in his <laughs> shining armor as a knight, and he's entering the scene in the story. And notice that he shows an interest in what's going on in his field. He's a very good businessman. He's a good leader, isn't he? he, he and he walks in and he greets, uh, he, he greets his workers, and notice his greeting. It may have been a common one. I don't know. Maybe that's what they all said to each other. But I love the fact that he says, the Lord be with you. I love that. His, his folk, the first thing he says is, hey, God is in control. In other words, the Lord be with you. And he shows interest and kindness to his laborers. Number one, what caught his interest? Look at verse five. Then Boaz said to his young man, who, his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this. Wow. Boaz's attention is immediately drawn to Ruth and inquires about her. Now, what is it about her that draws Boaz? Well, obviously, first, sight. <laughs> she must have been a beautiful young woman. And um, that's what drew his, his interest, you know, first was visual, visual. Um, and it's amazing what the servant is able to describe about Ruth in just a few short sentences. I love this. Look at verse 6 and 7. It's not, yes, oh, she's gorgeous. Man, we have all been looking at her ever since she got to the... No, listen to what he says, verse 6 and 7. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is that young, here we go again, Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued, listen to this, from early morning until now, must have been late in the day, except for a short rest. So what is he reporting about her? What is he saying? What is he conveying to the boss? A, number one, her reputation. Obviously, she was well-liked and respected for the, uh, the, for the servant would not have reported so favorably Again, because she was a foreigner, a Moabitess, and all those kinds of things, he would, might not have, you know, uh, reported in such a positive way had her reputation not preceded her. He knows who she is, and he has heard all about her kind heart. B, her graciousness. She had not gleaned until she asked permission. She's polite. She had the right, according to the law, to glean um, anywhere she wants, but she graciously asks permission in each field that she goes. And she entered into Boaz's field and said, hey, would it be okay if I glean? So she asked permission, which is apparently something that she did not need to do, and he was very impressed with that. Number C, her hard work. He obviously had been, been impressed with how hard she'd worked. Notice he says that she's been working since early a.m. and just had one rest. And again, you know, thinking about that picture that we <laughs> looked at it, a few minutes ago, back-breaking, bent over from her waist down, pulling up, putting it into a basket, and on and on. Uh, she was working very, very hard, and he says she'd been working since this morning with one rest. Some versions say, says, uh, says, uses the word rest, a little house or shelter. So apparently in the fields where they were reaping and gleaning, there was perhaps maybe a little shed or some sort of little place where the workers could come in and just take a break for a few minutes. And so that's the picture here, that she came in one time to get rest all day long. What is Boaz's reaction to this evaluation? He obviously is impressed with what he has heard and saw. Number two, what were his protective 
actions. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz apparently went up to her and said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not uh, go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my women. In other words, the women that are reaping my fields, my, my employees, stay, hang out with them. Be around them. It'll be safe for you. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Apparently, again, in this little shed, maybe um, the young men have drawn uh, water. Maybe they have like a big cistern of, of water there that they, they're you know, allowed to drink from, perhaps mostly the reapers, no doubt. And maybe the gleaners had to figure out their own water system. They had to have their water bottles with them or whatever. Anyway. So first of all, A, he instructs her to remain in his field. He invites her to stay exclusively in his field. The implication is that he will provide enough for her from his harvest. B, he instructs her to remain with his women. Stay uh, the field where they are reaping. Stay in that field. Only stay where my reapers are staying, my women weepers. Uh, working close to his reapers would help her um, be more, more safe. C, he instructs his men not to touch her, to, res to treat her with respect. Okay, we know that this, is, this woman here that has arrived uh, in our fields is a beggar, and she's trying to you know, put food together for her family, but leave her alone. Stay far, far away. We're, we're protecting her. We're watching over her, is what he's basically saying. He... Um, also uh, allows her not to be bothered in her effort to get grain. Like, don't bother her. She's busily trying to get grain for her family, for her mother-in-law. D, he instructs her to share drawn, drawn water, a very valuable provision. It would have been extremely tedious work, and they would have needed to drink water all day long. And so he is seeing to it that Ruth is not losing valuable time by drawing water, drawing her own water. That just go ahead and use, you know, the water that has already been drawn for my reapers, for, for my employees. I want you to be a part of that because I don't want you to waste time having to draw your own water. Such a beautiful picture that um, he does everything he can for her without, here it is, overstepping his bounds. Overstepping his bounds or making her feel like a charity case by handing her free grain. Hey, if you go down that field, there's a spot over there, there's a big mound of, of grain, just take that with you. you. You get that, you don't have to worry about gleaning, just take that. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't overstep his bounds by making her feel like a charity case. That would have been too much. Three, notice Ruth's response. It is so beautiful, so revealing of her character, such a role model for us. Look at verse 10. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner, not a part of the Jewish community? I'm not a part of Bethlehem. I'm a foreigner. I come from Moab. Um, and so she's saying, how, how is it that you're being so kind to me? A, first, her humility. She prostrates herself in humble gratitude. Now, it may have been a custom, which is not really familiar to us, that when the boss comes in, you throw yourself out of your desk and lie down on the ground and say, wow, boss, I'm so glad to see you this morning. I don't think that's kind of a practice that we, we know. Maybe this was something, a common one for them. But regardless, it was very humble, wasn't it? Very humble for her. Not fake response, but genuine amazement. I just can't believe that you're being this kind to me. I'm a foreigner, she's saying. She has an attitude of surprise that Boaz would be so kind. Why me? Rather than an attitude of, well, it's about time somebody helped me out here. <laughs> Which sometimes we can get in our own lives, can't we? Wow. So often have the attitude that everybody owes us and ought to shower us with attention and favors, but not Ruth, not Ruth. B, her lack of entitlement. She is so humble and unexpected that she asks, why are you so kind? And I think it's a legitimate ask. I think she's like shocked, like, wow, thank you. 
Why are you being so kind to me? Wow, such a beautiful picture of how God works in and through, here it is, Ruth's good choices. Her good choices of integrity, of humility, of not being entitled. And so God's able to work in those. Look at verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your mother and father and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. Proverbs 22.1 says, it talks about how a good reputation precedes us. And obviously, the town people were talking and saying, wow, this young, beautiful woman from Moab, you know, I can't believe it. She's taking care, she left everything, and she's lost everything, and she left everything, and here she is taking care of her mother-in-law. Obviously, the townspeople were talking. Boaz is impressed with her integrity and godliness. How he responds reveals his character. Four, what character traits do we observe in Boaz? A, he pronounces a blessing. Look at verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward uh, be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Reward in Hebrew, the word means wages. He is expressing that he trusts Yahweh will pay in full for her kindness and integrity in his life. Uh, one of my favorite verses, I've mentioned it to you many, many times before, Hebrews 6.10, it assures us that God never misses a thing that we do for him. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. I love that. That um, it is so incredible that not only is he conscious of what we're doing, that he will not overlook your work, but he will, um, he will take care of us as we're doing that. Isn't that a great thought? That, you know, we might be doing something kind for somebody and maybe nobody in the world notices. God notices. And I, I know I have this picture in my mind, and God will do it however he wants. He'll probably just poop into our minds or something, zap it into our brains or whatever. But I almost feel like he's got a book up there, and he's writing things down. He'll say, wow, Denise, I saw that today. Nobody else noticed that, but I saw that. Saw what you did. Thank you. I know you did it for me, and I, 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 I want to thank you. I, he notices everything. That's what the verse says. Unjust. Uh, not to overlook the work and love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. Wow. Going back to Boaz, um, it's incredible that he is so conscious of the character of God. It shows his closeness to God that he will pay in full. And the interesting thing is that God uses him to answer his own prayer. As he's praying to the Lord on behalf of Ruth, little does he know that God is going to put them together and he's going to be the one, Boaz, to save Ruth in her situation. He never even knows until the night that she, she didn't plan it. Naomi planned it. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but it's just incredible that she, he's praying, oh, God's going to take care of you and all that, and little does he know that he's going to be the one that God chooses to be her caregiver and caretaker and love of her life. On and on it goes. Okay, B. Um, <clears throat> he recognizes her faith. We also see in this verse that in his character, he recognizes her faith. Notice he's saying that she's come to trust under Yahweh's wings. You have come to take refuge in Yahweh. So he knows that, that, uh, that Ruth has taken the Jewish God, Yahweh, the personal name, Lord, uh, the, the personal name of, of the Jewish community to be her, her God. And so he knows that. The imagery of a tiny bird snuggling under the wings of a foster mother is such a picture of trust and security. I love it. It's such a touching picture. Obviously a man who knows God and understands that, that trust and security to paint such a beautiful, loving picture of God 
taking her under his wings. He must have had a very personal, deep relationship himself with uh, the Heavenly Father, so intimate, a comment that would not be made by one who doesn't know God himself, the Heavenly Father's love. Heavenly Father's love. Look at Ruth's response, verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. How comforting to her, though I'm not one of your servants, quote unquote, she is well aware of her being a stranger in a strange land, strange custom, and the comfort that Boaz's kindness must have been to her, his protection, his notice, his provision for her. Wow. See on your outline. He sees past her nationality. Sees past her nationality. Boaz uh, exemplifies the gracious spirit that we should be reaching out to strangers in our community. And is there any place where this truth is more real than in South Florida? Don't you think that perhaps South Florida is, maybe not even perhaps, the most... Um, mixed, integrated community in all the country. I mean, maybe New York some, maybe California some, but there's nothing like South Florida. We've got our Cuban community coming in. We've got the South American, Brazilians, and so forth, on and on it goes, coming in. We are such a wonderful mixture. It's such a fun place to be, isn't it? To be in such a mixture of people uh, from all different nationalities and, and places and all those kinds of things. What an opportunity we have, wow to minister to them. And not only does he see past her nationality to pray for needs, but he begins to meet those needs that he can. Look at this. I love this. Verse 14 through 16. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. I love this. Watch this. And she had some left over. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his, his young men. After she'd gone out back into the field, he says, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the branches for her and leave it in her glean. Leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting extra grain in her path. And she doesn't know it because, again, he does not want to embarrass her or put her in a position of, wow, you know, what, why is he doing this? But he wants to make sure that she gets all that she could possibly need. I love it. I love it. Letting her glean beyond where she normally would, unbeknownst to her unbeknownst to her. B. Then we get back at home. Ruth is at home with Naomi. Verses 17 through 19. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephod of, uh, ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and here it is. She also brought out and gave her what food she left after being satisfied at lunch. Wow. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, 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 a lot of hard work. Not only did she have to glean all day until evening, but then she had to beat out the grain. Wow, and it, it, it talks about how she took home an ephah, which is about 10 gallons. Now, how do you physically carry 10 gallons? I don't know. I cannot even carry a gallon, barely. But anyway, she returns with 10 gallons of grain. Amazing. And she saved lunch for Naomi. I love it. I love it. I love it. Her unsavable, and do you love, the story was written thousands of years ago, and God includes that? I want you to see her heart. I want you to see her heart, he's saying. Um, he, that, he, that God sees to it that the writer does not leave that verse 18 out. Her unselfish consideration is amazing considering 
all that she was going through. Look at Naomi's response in verse 20, the beginning of 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Her first response, notice who gets the glory. Who does she say? May, you, may he be blessed by the Lord. Again, Lord Yahweh, personal name of the, the Jewish personal name of God. And um, she's, saying, she's not saying, wow, weren't you lucky? What a wonderful coincidence that you ended up in Boaz's field. No, because there are no coincidences, only God incidences. And she recognizes that. And she said, wow, you were blessed by God, not luck. You were blessed by God. She knew where her blessings had come from. Once again, proof, I think personally, that she was not a bitter woman. The first thing that came to her mind was, wow, look what God's done for you. And so, yes, I'm sure she had bitter moments. Yes, she was in a bitter situation, but I don't see her as an angry, bitty, bitter, oh God, what have you done in my life type of a woman at all. I don't think she would have responded in that way. Notice Naomi's concern and interest, the second half of 20 through 22. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young uh, women, lest uh, in the field you might be assaulted. Um, we see her listening. We see Naomi listening. We see her offering advice, um, concerned about her welfare. And then finally, verse 23, so she kept close to the women, the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat's harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. In other words, they, the, uh, the Lord, through the writer of this, does not want us to, uh, to miss the fact that she didn't just do barley season, she also did wheat season. <laughs> this was a long time. She went every day and gleaned and carried it all back to the house, and then, like we talked about earlier, then had to beat the grain out of the branches or whatever they're called. And then they had to make it into bread. And then they had to bake it on um, open fires. And on and on it goes. This was tedious, hard work. And she did it all the way through to harvest. Wow. She persevered. This wasn't just one day of hard work. She hung in there. Notice, this is so important, that God's answer did not come overnight. His timing is perfect. Let me say that again. His timing is perfect. The heaven, Heavenly Father's love, His timing is perfect. In summary, how about us? Are we waiting for God to work in these times? As we're going through the challenges that we face in our lives, are we waiting for God to work? Are we uh, waiting to not be microwave people that we expect the answer today? Lord, I prayed about this this morning, and I'm about to make dinner, and you have not answered my prayer yet. <laughs> Are you up there? Are we waiting for God's timing to work? How did Ruth deal with her difficulties? She rolled up her sleeves and did what she could as she waited for God's open door. She did what she could. She worked. She evaluated the situation and, and got to work, unselfishly doing whatever, sharing with others, doing what she could. What a picture for us as we are so wanting, especially right now, a quick answer. Could we be done, Lord? Could this be, I thought it was going to be done at the end of 2020. Here we are, 2021, and we're still lingering. Could we be done by February? Could we be done by summer? Could we be done by, you know what? There's nothing wrong with praying that, but let's wait for God's timing. Let's let him do what he's going to do in his timing, patiently waiting for God, responding with integrity and obedience and unselfish hard work taking care of others around us until his time is realized.
For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.